Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Bill and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. What we're going to do today and over the course of many future episodes is give you the idea of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot and share with you everything that we've learned. How are you doing, Steve? Doing good. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, our, I think, our, what, third or fourth pandemic episode? Yeah, fourth, right? Yeah. I think so. So we are still maskless, trying to practice social distancing. <laughs> we are here in New York State, which is one of the states that are is actually doing pretty well. Oh yeah, at least for now. One of the few states. Yeah, <laughs> unless we keep doing this without our masks on. Right. <laughs> so if only the rest of the country was doing as well as New York. <laughs> All right. So this morning we are at the East Otto State Forest. This is a property run by the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, and we are about 40 minutes southeast of Buffalo in rural western New York. Not much around here besides some farms, right? Mm -hmm. And this is all reclaimed farmland. There are some man-made ponds and wetlands here, but the neat thing about this property is there's a forest road that runs pretty much right through the middle of the property. And do you remember back in February, uh, I posted some pictures of uh, my first winter camping trip with Violet? Uh, I'll just say I do. Maybe you missed it. <laughs> I'm pretty self-centered. So, so I took her on her first winter camping trip here because along that forest road, there's a bunch of campsites that the state maintains for free. They're just primitive campsites. You can just drive up to them. This place gets a lot of use during hunting season. And today, just as a, a warning folks, we, we may run into the sound of campers because we're walking the forest road. We're going to be walking by the campsites. Uh -huh. So we may be waking people up because it's still a little bit early. I'm right, used so, to when I, I'm in a place where there's a lot of people camping, I feel like I hear them play like country music and stuff <laughs> late at night when I'm just trying to get some peace and quiet. Why do you say country music? Do you have a problem with country music? That's just been in my experience. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you can hear the birds around us. We have some oven birds calling right there. Teacher, 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 teacher. But the topic for today, you have no idea what I'm going to do. I have no idea. Right. Yeah, this is going to be a surprise. Well, I think you're going to be able to figure it out pretty quick because I have mentioned it the last time we were together. Mm -hmm. But this is going to be a specific plant. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you some of the lesser known common names. Oh, at, at this point, I feel like I know what it is because I, now I'm remembering our last uh, conversation. All right. Give me, let, still let me guess. All right. The lesser known common names are corpse plant, ice plant, mm -hmm. ghost flower, and bird's nest. Bird's nest? Yeah. What? <laughs> this is Indian pipe, right? That's right. So yeah. this is Indian pipe. And over the course of the episode, you'll figure out why bird's nest is one of the names. And in my research, I got to say, I probably came across 20 different common names, some of <laughs> mm -hmm. which made perfect sense, some of which made no sense. Right. But I do have to say that this was a listener suggested topic. Okay. So we want to say thanks to longtime patron of the podcast, Dan Stapleton. Oh, nice. Yeah, he recommended this. Wait, Dan Stapleton? Isn't yeah. that like... I mean, again, isn't this like a country artist, Dan Stapleton? <laughs> oh, you're thinking of uh, Chris Stapleton. Chris Stapleton, yes. and it's not country. <laughs> no, he's, he's not country. country. What? He is country. Chris Stapleton. Yeah, he's country. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. <laughs> All right, so thank you, Dan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now, for those people that don't know what Indian pipe looks like, uh, I'll start with a, a description. And if you run across it, it really does look more like a fungus. Okay, but let me say, it's a plant, so it's going to be green, there's going to be nice showy flowers. <laughs> Why did I say that all plants have showy flowers? <laughs> but I think you're being purposefully uh, 
obtuse would that be <laughs> sure <laughs> so steve is making those comments because indian pipe stands out because it is a vascular plant but it's not green mm -hmm. it's all white and that's why if you come across it and you're not familiar with it it may look to you more like a fungus but it's actually a parasitic vascular flowering plant now the whole plant is white so that includes the flowering stems they're about 10 to 20 centimeters tall and each of the stems has one white translucent flower and each of these flowers i didn't know this each flower only lasts for about one to two weeks That's oh it. okay yeah the flowers are nodding they have two to four sepals and then about four to five petals and the ends of the petals they kind of flare out to give the flower cup the look of a pipe because the head of it is nodding and then it's kind of flared out at the end if you look inside the flower there's about 10 to 12 stamens surrounding a stout style, that female part of the plant. Mm -hmm. And then at the base of each of the stamens are the nectaries. And as the flower emerges, it does face downward. Why do you think it faces downward? Oh. Well, I have, hmm. Because it nods. There's gotta be a reason for that, right? I mean, there doesn't have to be a reason, <laughs> but. Uh... There usually is. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to come up with these adaptive stories that you naturalists like so much. But, uh, you know, I'm a man of evolution, so I have a, I have a little bit of a tighter grasp than so some of you people. But. What's, what's the usual reason giving for the... Why, like, why does a, uh, some flowers close up during a rainstorm? I mean, I, I, I would assume it's to protect the reproductive organs it's in to, some way. To keep rainwater from diluting the nectaries. Okay. Right? This is one part that... I found some discrepancies in the research. Now, you know, you've seen Indian pipe. Now, when it goes through its flowering and it goes into its fruiting stage, mm -hmm. you know the, the head of the flower stands straight upright. Have you ever noticed that before? I have not, I was about to say, I've not noticed it. Okay, so as the flower continues to emerge, the stem does become upright with the flower facing skyward. Sometimes it turns pink, Eventually, it's going to turn like a dark brown or black color. Mm -hmm. But the time that it turns upward, that's where the discrepancy came up. I found one reference that said once it's pollinated, the flower head will point straight up. Okay. Which would make sense because once, once you're pollinated, you don't worry about your nectaries anymore. Right. Right. But I also found another reference that said it's not going to turn up until fertilization happens. And then I found one other reference that just said, oh, it just eventually points upward, whether it's fertilized or not. Got it. <laughs> if there's any Indian pipe experts out there that know what causes it to point upward specifically, mm -hmm. let us know. I'd like to find out. Yeah, that's weird. All right, so let's move on now to the scientific name. Do you know what it is for Indian pipe? So I want to know how you pronounce the genus. Monotropa. Okay, never mind. I was thinking of a family member, not not it. Totally oh. forgot it was Monotropa. <laughs> All right. Okay, how do you pronounce the family then? It would be Ericaceae. I totally forgot it was an Ericaceae. <laughs> we talked about this on a previous episode that I always get this wrong in my head. So I'm glad that, uh, I'm not even going to say what I thought it was. I'm glad that it's an Ericaceae and, uh, and that it's Monotropa. Two things that I completely forgot. All right, well, we're getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> okay. So. Got it. We could. We could, We don't even have to keep that part in. If no, you want. I want to keep that in. That's okay. Good. <laughs> so Monotropa uniflora okay. is the full scientific name. Yeah. Now, you were at, talking about pronunciation. It was explained to me at one point that Latin's a dead language. Right. No one knows how it's supposed to be pronounced. So pronounce it however you want. Right. And I've also heard the adage, if you pronounce a scientific name wrong, do it with that's authority. A good, no. 
<laughs> well, I mean, that's a good thing to go by, but it's oh, fine I know what because you're gonna say. you read it in a book. Right. Yeah. You or you read it somewhere. Yeah. So it shows that you're reading. Yeah, right. You're not just hearing it from somebody. Right? Yeah, reading is a positive. <laughs> All right. So monotropa means once turned. Okay. And I came across several. Once turned. Yeah, several descriptions for what So is this mean. the candy cane shape they're talking about? Once turned? Like it's just a single? Well, that was one reference. Okay. And then another one said once turned refers to the head of the flower turns up once. Okay. All right. So mm-hmm. who knows? <laughs> and we don't know why. <laughs> we don't know why. But the specific epithet, uniflora, obviously means. One flowered. One flowered. So this name was actually given by the OG father of taxonomy. Oh, Linnaeus? Yeah, he wow. actually named this plant in 1753, and it's kept the same genus and species since then. Oh, cool. But it has moved families. But right now I want to talk about pollination. Mm-hmm. And for a plant that, like, I feel we come across pretty regularly mm-hmm. in our travels during the summertime here in western New York, there's not a lot known about who pollinates it. People have recorded different types of bees, some long-tongued, some short-tongued bees, And then I found one reference to it's possibly pollinated by moths. But that was pretty much it. That's all I could find. (laughs) With with the white color, moth is what I thought of. But it's not like it's a big showy flower or anything. No, no. Remember, it's only 10 to 20 centimeters high. Right. Now, once it is pollinated and fertilization happens, then it will eventually develop an oblong brown capsule a little over one centimeter long. Okay, so at the top of the stalk. Think of it as a slightly elongated watermelon, about one centimeter long. Okay. Kind of looks like that. And I actually found one reference, which I thought was kind of odd. A one centimeter watermelon. (laughs) Right. How dare you? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, but the other reference I found, which was really strange, was it's kind of shaped like a human testicle. Okay. I mean, that's an oblong watermelon, I guess. <laughs> I just thought that was an odd point of reference <laughs> right. to make. And if you're unfamiliar with watermelons, <laughs> a testicle. A testicle. There you go. <laughs> now, that does make me remember, though, I came across a website that really has nothing to do with this episode, but okay. I think you got you will like it and our, our audience will like it. Mm-hmm. The Measure of Things. Oh, Okay. Do you know about this? Is this the one where you keep scrolling down and it keeps zooming in on things? Like all the way up to like a galactic scale, all the no, way down no, to no, like... No, 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 So okay. this is a, a website where if you're reading an, reading anything or, or talking to somebody and, and they give you some kind of measurement, mm-hmm. um, and this is usually dealing with weights or distances. So if someone says, oh, that property is a thousand acres big, and you're wondering, all right, what the hell does that mean? Right, what's a thousand acres? You type in a thousand acres and it gives you all these points of reference. Oh, like it'll tell you like, oh, so it's not going to say it's this many square miles. It's going to say it's seven football fields. Right. So like if you type in a hundred miles, it'll say, oh, that's one and a half times as long as the English Channel, or it's like Mm -hmm. three Grand Canyons. Okay. Uh, Or no, I'm sorry. Uh, It's one third as long as the Grand Canyon. Okay. So it gives you all these different points of reference. So you can say, oh, you can kind of picture in your head. Right. What, what's, so. Just tells you other things that you don't know the length of. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's just, if you type into Google, the measure of all, or the measure of things, all one word, uh-huh. it'll, it'll come up. It was just fun to play around with. Got it. <laughs> all right. So that testicle-shaped <laughs> capsule that develops, the seeds that are inside are tiny and they're numerous. They're small, only about 0.6 to 0.8 millimeters. Mm-hmm. And I did find from the measure of things, that's about half the size of a grain of sand. Wow, so okay. Each seed, so they're tiny. And they're released through these slits that open 
um, going from the top to the bottom of the capsule. Now, since you have seeds that are so small, that reduced structure, it suggests that there's very specialized requirements for germination. Okay. And this usually results in very few seedlings. And I have to imagine, so sometimes I do see clumps of, of Indian pipe. Right. Um, are those its progeny? Or does it have multiple stems? Is that one plant kind of joined together? Yeah, is sharing? it one plant or multiple seeds that have become multiple plants? As far as I know, each stalk has its own rootstock. Okay. So, as listeners have probably already figured out, they're native here to New York State. They usually flower from June to August. So as we walk here through the East Otto State Forest, we're going to be looking for them in the woods. Sure. But their range is continental. They're, <laughs> you can find them from Alaska all the way down to northern Florida, west to Washington, California, down into Central America. The only place they're not found in North America is the arid southwest. <laughs> so we're like around the Four Corner states and then Wyoming, South Dakota. And throughout much of its range, it is considered uncommon. So right. It's uh, ubiquitous, or not ubiquitous, well, it's everywhere. It just, it's not, but it's not everywhere at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Within the areas that it is, there's not a ton of it. Right. It's yeah. like you can find it in basically every county, but <laughs> you won't find a lot of it. Exactly. And as I just mentioned, as we're walking along here, I'm looking in shady spots because it needs mm -hmm. very little light. It's found in usually shady areas with rich that rich deep how do you pronounce it humus oh sure yeah. <laughs> so that was something that i was thinking about so when we were talking about these flowers essentially we described them as these little ghostly white candy canes in the forest and we said that they were kind of pointed down maybe to protect the reproductive organs right yeah and they're in pretty like deep woods you and i have both been hiking in woods yeah during rainstorms, right? Sure. And it doesn't rain that hard inside of a rainstorm. No, it I mean, sorry, it doesn't rain that, that hard inside of a forest like that, and they're always in forests. This is so funny, because I actually just had this kind of debate with my daughter Violet yesterday, because we went for a hike during the rain. Right. And she was like, oh, we don't have to bring raincoats, because we'll just stand under a tree if it's raining. <laughs> I'm like, but you understand that once a tree's leaves get covered with water right it's gonna drip down and it's still gonna get wet yeah I, I, i'm not saying we're not gonna get wet but it's it's way less uh destructive oh. in the forest then oh yeah i don't think they're worried about the i should say worried but <laughs> <laughs> all right we get it you think plants have emotions yeah. and they're like animals <laughs> but no even water dripping down from trees could dil dilute the nectaries okay right i see what you're saying it's not going to get pelted but right you know. all right it's going to be a fine mist <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not going to be a fight. It's going to be big drops. All right, so where was I? I don't know. <laughs> oh, we were talking about it's, it's what it needs in the, uh, in the woods. Yeah. So you're almost never going to find it in full sunlight, but it is often associated with beeches, maples, birches, oaks, conifers. So it likes hardwoods. It's not a acidic ah. soil type of plant? Well, that's funny you should say that. Okay, that's what I'm wondering. Because... I did find a study. This is from 2017. Should we say what hardwoods are? Or is this a very common thing? Oh, I think that's a good idea. Go ahead. Sure. So um, so I would imagine these hardwoods, these are angiosperm <laughs> trees. So they are flower producing. Yeah. Uh, and they... Unlike have... gymnosperms, like conifers. Right, right. Yeah. 
No and uh, and and um, the reason they're called hardwoods, I believe, and you know, I'm a little bit a little bit rusty with my plant anatomy, <laughs> but I think it's because of the vessel elements, tracheids or vessel elements. Either way, it's part of the vasculature of the plant mm -hmm. that makes the it gives the wood a different quality. Than, right. So conifers than, are usually softwoods, mm -hmm. and then uh, things like maples, beeches, usually hardwoods. Right. But then I've also heard of things like uh, aspen, poplars, you know, mm -hmm. that's, they grow so fast. I've heard those referred to as soft hardwoods. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Right. And none of these trees are soft, right? Right. <laughs> so it, 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 it does get confusing in that way because it's, I, it's all relative. You, if I hit you with a piece of pine, it's still going to hurt. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is all relative. All right. So before you once again got us off track, I was going to talk about a study from 2017 that looked at tree associations with Indian pipe. Okay. So they wanted to see if they could measure what trees Indian pipe associates with and whether there were specific tree species or tree categories like coniferous or deciduous. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they measured the distance from Indian pipe stands, the distance to trees within a two meter radius. They measured you know, what kind of trees there are, whether they were conifers or deciduous, and then how close they were. And what they found was that there was no significant relationship between the distance to the tree and the tree category. Okay. So it didn't matter if it was coniferous or deciduous. Okay. But there was a significant difference between tree species. In particular, Indian pipe, they were found to be closer to oaks and further from red maple. Interesting. Yeah. So they hmm. also found that tree proximity and tree presence had a significant positive relationship with health of the individual flowers. Hmm. So the closer the trees were, and whether there were trees close by, the closer they were, that meant healthier Indian pipe. Got it. But there was no significant relationship between tree category and health of the plant. So, so is, was, is there any, did they look at the soil at all? Is the, does it like tannins or something? Like what, what's so special about oaks? They did not look at the soil. They were really just hmm. looking at what are the trees that are there? How close are they? How are the individual plants doing? But going along with that question you just asked, remember when we talked about it a couple weeks ago, there were not a ton of recent studies on Indian pipe. Mm -hmm. I found a bunch of studies from like the 20s and the 70s and the 80s. Back when they valued plants just for being plants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before we got into all this genetic stuff that yeah, nobody yeah. really cares about, right? The good stuff. <laughs> uh, I'm joking. For <laughs> but that's funny because now what I'm going to talk about next is taxonomy. Ooh. Yeah. So anyone out there, um, this would be the time to go to the bathroom or if you're listening <laughs> in the car, zone out. Because taxonomy is something that Steve loves, uh -huh. uh, and it's usually the low point of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, pitcher plants, Saracenia, they're pretty closely related to the uh, Ericaceae. Oh, mm -hmm. all right, well, say that, because we're going to talk about Say that? Stuff. I just said it. No, I said save it. <laughs> oh, save it. Yeah, because we're going to be talking about that soon enough, <laughs> all right? Oh, we're actually going to talk about that now. Perfect. <laughs> As we said, it is a member of the Ericaceae, and that's commonly known as the heath family. Yeah. So these plants often grow in habitats that are tough for other plants to get by in. So highly acidic places, sandy soils, things like that. So close relatives, just to give you an idea, things like cranberries, blueberries, mm -hmm. uh, trailing arbutus, these are all members of Ericaceae, the heath family. So pine sap, 
You familiar with that one? Yeah, that's another parasitic plant. It is. So, looks somewhat similar to Indian pipe. Mm -hmm. um, we do have it around here. I think I think of uh, pine sap, beech drops, Indian pipe. Like I kind of always think of them similarly. Yeah. So I don't know about if beech drops is a member of the heath family. We'll have to put that in the episode. Yeah. Notes. Do now, you think it's Orobanchesi? That's the genus Broom, broomrape family. Oh, that sounds right. Mm -hmm. All right, so pine sap, though, the reason I, I mention that specifically is because it's the only other member of the genus. Oh, okay. So pine sap is Monotropa hypopithes. hope I'm pronouncing that right. Okay, well, again, it doesn't matter. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and hypopithes means below, means below like fir and pine or something like that. So just hmm. talking about where you find it. Rhodod That's a good name, then. <laughs> and then rhododendrons <laughs> are also members. So as I already mentioned, Monotropa is a genus of just two species. They're native to temperate regions of the Northern Hemisphere, and they're generally rare. And I wanted to focus a minute on the different populations of Indian pipe, because I talked about before how it's found kind of throughout North America, also down in Central America, but there's also populations in Asia. Oh, okay. Yeah. Have you ever seen red Indian pipe before? Pictures uh, of it. You're, we're not going to have it around here. No, I've, I don't think I've seen it. All right, so I was looking, when I was trying to figure out who the members in the genus Monotropa were, I found pine sap, I found Indian pipe, but then I also found a species called Monotropa coccinea. Okay. So I plugged that. That came up in iNaturalist, and when the picture came up associated with it, it looks just like Indian pipe, but it's bright red. Hmm, okay. Weird looking. And what I found is that used to be considered a separate species, but now it's really just considered a different variety of Indian pipe, Monotropa uniflora. Interesting. But online, you'll still see it in some places as separate. So recent research has suggested that the Indian pipe populations in Central America, North America, and Asia are actually distinct from one another. So going on what we know, it appears that the plant originated in Asia and it probably traveled over the Bering Land Bridge, you know, 3.5 million years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a genetic study in 2004. Oh my gosh, we're... <laughs> I know, I'm just getting out of breath. You're talking, and, uh, and I'm not even talking, and I'm out of breath. <laughs> All right, so we, we, let's slow down a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so in 2004, there was a genetic study, and I actually cut and pasted into my notes a couple paragraphs that I'm gonna read to you and since you're the geneticist, right? Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we should say here, you know, I posted this on our social media, but you have your first authorship of a real paper. Yeah, uh, when you say first authorship, it sounds like well, I'm the first author. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is not true. So, I'm, I'm part of many projects, yeah, so and this was one of them. <laughs> your name is on the paper. My, pa my name is on the paper, smack dab right in the middle. <laughs> your first time having your yeah. name on a paper, yes. Although the work I did had, had a lot to do with the results of the paper, so that was pretty exciting. Yeah, so can you just give people sure. a quick idea? Just very briefly, yeah. the paper was dealing with two different uh, chemicals, I guess, um, and their evolutionary histories. Caffeine? Yeah, caffeine was one and crokin was the other. Okay. Crokin is going to be something that you find in saffron. Okay. And actually in the genus Crocus. So crokin, crocus. Um, and what we were looking at was whether they had an ancestor that also had these compounds or 
if the, these compounds were, they evolved independently in different lines. Like, oh, okay. for example, in caffeine, coffee, chocolate, tea, these things aren't super closely related, but, you know, there's a chance that maybe caffeine was in their ancestor. So you did know? they all get it from a common ancestor yeah. or did it develop independently? And it seems like it independently of and it seems like it independently evolved. Okay. So, right. yeah. Well, we'll <laughs> I mean, that was my part of the project, but there was a lot of other things going on in the paper too. But it's still very exciting to be part of that. Yeah, that's awesome. So, and we'll put a link in the episode notes. I, as I said, I posted it on social media, but if you missed it, we'll put a link if uh, that sounds interesting to you. You can check mm -hmm. it out. All right, so I said that I was going to read to you a couple paragraphs here. So I'm going to read it and you can um, translate for us, okay? Sure. All right. The North American and Central American representatives. So they took Indian pipe plants mm -hmm. from North America, Central America, and Asia, and then looked at their genetics. All right, Th those have to be some pretty disparate populations, yeah. you'd have to imagine. So they said the North American and Central American representatives are strongly supported as a monophyletic clade mm -hmm. and diverged from the Asian representative. Okay. So that seems, correct me if I'm wrong, that seems that it started in Asia, mm -hmm. And then the two populations here in the Americas developed from that, evolved right. from that. Okay, so not only is it saying that the Central American and North American diverged from the Asian population, or came from the Asian population, but both of them shared the same ancestor that came from the Asian, Asian population. Okay. And then after, after that single one, that single line diverged, then it diverged again into those two populations. All right, well, there's more here. Okay. The absolute sequence differences between the Asian and American representatives are larger than those among the exclusively American representatives. Specifically, 18, 18, 20, and 19 differences occur between the Asian representatives and the American representatives. What does that mean? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, would ha I think I would have to look at the study a little bit more. All right, because they, they actually then list the genes here. Oh, wait a second. Oh, those are, yeah, those are names of genes, but. Yeah. So they're saying 18, that there's, 18. there's more differences occurring between the Asian representative and the American representative. I mean, which would make sense because the more closely related to something you are, the fewer differences you're going to have. So they're really, what they're saying there is just more evidence backing up their initial statement. Yeah. All right. So then it goes on. So then they look at the North American one, North American and Central American ones specifically. The North American representatives are robustly supported as mm -hmm. a monophyletic clade. So what does that mean, a monophyletic clade, for people that, that, that might not know? So monophyletic clade is just, uh, let's say you have a group of species as well as the ancestor belong in that group. Okay. Yeah, the, the ancestor of all the species. So it has to be the ancestor and all of its descendants. Okay. Yeah. So the North American representatives are robustly supported as a monophyletic clade and diverged from the Central American representative. Okay. Additionally, absolute differences between the Central American and the North American representatives are greater than those found among just the North American representatives. So folks, I know we're kind of getting into the weeds here, but mm -hmm. I wanted to involve Steve a little bit <laughs> sure. rather than just holding the mic. Yeah. But correct me if I'm wrong, again, what this seems to be saying is that the Central American representatives diverged from the North American representatives. So all of the all of the individuals in North America have less variation than the North American populations and the the Central American populations. Correct. Okay. So it says this is the first study that suggests that Monotropa uniflora Indian pipe 
from Central America is molecularly diverged and phylogenetically distinct from the North American representatives. Okay. All right. And that's not saying that this population was always in Central America. Right. Because it, populations move over time. And so it just it's just a mistake of history that they ended up in Central America at this point. A mistake in history. A mistake of history. They didn't have to be there, but right. that's where they are now. But they eventually but you, moved there. But you can imagine a time lapse of this population moving across the globe, you know, so I tried, and slowly changing over time. Yeah, and I, I tried to find further studies to back this up, but again, I really couldn't find any. If anybody out there has more recent studies that talk about this, because what it seemed to be saying, and you know more about this than I do, mm -hmm. is it's saying that eventually, possibly, maybe the Central American species, sorry, the Central American population mm -hmm. will become its own species, Okay. I mean, it's possible, right? Yeah, I mean, if, it, if it's evolving at a faster rate, you right. know, then... Yeah. But it's the Central American populations that have that red color. Okay. I mean, it really looks like a different plant. If you put them next to each other, you'd think, oh, these are related, but there's no way they're going to be the same species. It would be like right. seeing a dandelion that was, you know, red or something. <laughs> you know, but there's red populations of um, Saracenia and, and red populations of, or maybe green populations of... What's the other member of that genus? That doesn't matter. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, you get variations, but this is like every member of the population is red. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say that. I was just saying the pictures that I saw online were all red. Okay. <laughs> but maybe if we travel down to South America or Central America, we'll say, oh no, there's some white ones, there's some red ones. Okay. Yeah. So maybe that's um, what we should do next episode. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Go down the I, by the way, the one I was thinking of was the cobra lily. It's a close relative of... Uh, Saracini? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's a member of the family. All right. So when we started off the episode today and talked about Indian pipe, you mentioned that the plant was all white, right? Mm-hmm. So it's lacking... Chlorophyll. Right. And that's when you read about Indian pipe, come across articles about Indian pipe, that's usually like the first thing that gets mentioned. Yeah. I do want to focus on that because... I was going to ask you if it was true. Like, do they have no chlorophyll or is it None. just like reduced? This is a vascular plant that carries out no photosynthesis. Man. It has no what, photosynthetic What type of evolution leaves. would have been involved in making that happen? <laughs> it seems crazy, right? It does. But did you know, and I'll be trapped if you know this, <laughs> because this, this may sound extraordinary. Sure. But there's actually 3,000 species of non-photosynthetic vascular plants. Oh, yeah, that's way higher than I thought. That's actually... Isn't it more than the number of gymnosperms that are in the entire planet? 3,000? I don't know. We'll I think it is. No, it is. Yeah, it's close. Yeah. But I actually did the math. That means half of 1% of all vascular plants are like Indian pipe. Wow, They're non-photosynthetic, okay. which, you know, doesn't sound huge, but <laughs> right. I mean, for most vascular plants that are photosynthetic. And it doesn't mean they're all white. They could be, like what you're saying, they could be red, yeah, um, purple, I guess, I don't know. Do it you could know, be lots of colors. Do you know the technical term for a plant that contains no chlorophyll? No. So you can impress your friends. Achlorophyllus. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's as close to what my guess was going to be. <laughs> so the, the leaves, they actually have no stomata. Oh, what? Well, I mean... They don't do photosynthesis, so they right. don't need the gas exchange. Exactly. Okay, because you need... Uh, you need CO2 right. yeah. <laughs> to fuel. So do they have no rubisco either? Or they have none of the components? I wonder if there's any remnants. You know, like we have vestigial right. organs and things like that, or vestigial bones and whatnot. But I wonder if they have like vestigial 
chemical compounds that right. they really don't need. And you know what? There, there were points in the research that talked about like remnant genes, things like that. And I just didn't get into that because mm -hmm. the information I had, I felt like I had enough. Sure, sure, sure. But maybe that could be an Indian pipe part two episode. Sure. <laughs> but if you think about that, the leaves, since there's no chlorophyll, no stomata, the leaves are really vestigial. Because what's their point? Right, right, right. Oh, the leaf itself, right. Yeah. Wait, aren't the leaves really reduced? They are. Okay, they, they look like little scales. They look more like bracts or scales. Sure, yeah. yeah. Now, and it even goes down to the rootlets. The rootlets have virtually no hairs for water and mineral absorption. The root hairs, that's just, uh, you want to expand your surface area for a root. And they're, they kind of expand further into the soil. Right, and yeah. most vascular plants that are doing photosynthesis, what are the root hairs for? I mean, it's mostly water, but you're going to get other minerals. Right. And, yeah. Water, nutrients, minerals, stuff yeah. like that. Not India pipe. So where is it getting its nutrition from? You already mentioned it, didn't you? Uh, didn't I say it, a parasite? Yeah, it's a parasite. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's getting its energy from another source, and that source is fungi. Oh, cool. Now we've mentioned... A lot of plants do this. Oh. I was but not to say. the extent, I'm guessing, <laughs> is Indian pipe. Well, we've mentioned this a lot on the podcast before, that most forest soil... It contains that vast network of mycelia. Is so, it really a parasitism? Yeah. Okay. So these, these fungi are not in a loving relationship. No. <laughs> okay. Indian pipe's a cheater. Got it. Okay. So if you dig up some forest soil, it, it can be difficult to see the mycelia. Have you seen it before, though? No. This thread-like structure? Oh, I've seen mycelia. Yeah. I, yeah. So typically, these fungi attach to the roots of plants. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for those listeners out there that... that don't know a lot about the mycorrhizal network or haven't heard about it. I'm just going to give a, a quick breakdown. So some 80% of vascular plants use mycelial fungi in their root systems. So typically the movement between the fungi and the plant is bidirectional. So the mycelia, they provide trees or other plants with water and minerals obtained from the surrounding soil. And then the trees, they give the fungi energy in the forms of sugars from photosynthesis, carbs. Mm -hmm. So it's a symbiotic relationship, a beneficial. So yeah. what is that, commensalism? Both parties, commensalism is that one's not really being hurt at all. Right, so what's the And one the other one's benefiting. So what's the one where they both benefit? I thought you, I thought you just said it. it was, well, a mutualism. Mutualism, there Oh, you, you didn't say it. Yeah. I did not. Okay. Just because there's symbiosis, there can be, symbiosis can be good for one, bad for the other, right? Right, so I was half listening, that's why I didn't catch that you didn't say <laughs> mutualism. But part of the reason is that we have a really, really nice deciduous forest next to us that actually has a really open... Understory? Ground layer, yeah, under, understory. Do you want to walk in there? Yeah, why don't we try to get in there? Because uh, it actually looks like a place where I might expect... Some India pipe. Oh, you know what? It, it, it's a mix. It's not just, uh, it's not just hardwood, but, but it does that might explain like... part of it. Underbrush on the side of the road. Walking here. through tick territory. Yeah, may get some ticks. Ugh. And I'm wearing all dark colors today. <laughs> so Wayne Gall would not be happy with me. <laughs> Shout out to the tick episode. Yeah. There's a lot of red pine here. This looks like a plantation. Yeah. Actually, I bet if we got in a very specific position, we would see that the red pines were in rows. Yeah. But yep, we can't look. tell right now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. We're starting to hit it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a very old plantation. Yeah. So this is actually a good spot to stop Sure. to talk a little bit about our sponsor of this episode. Oh, yeah. So, Steve, you know a question I've been hearing a lot lately? What? People have asked me, hey, Bill, where'd you get those boots? 
<laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> because I've been wearing my boots from Gumleaf USA, yeah. who have been a sponsor of the Field Guides podcast for quite a while now. Those of you that are longtime listeners, you know, we talk about Gumleaf boots on every episode. And Jack, our contact at Gumleaf, he was kind enough to provide us both with beautiful pairs of Gumleaf boots. Mm-hmm. And we use them constantly. Yeah, I took mine with me uh, on a, a little trip yesterday. Didn't end up using them, but uh, <laughs> I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need so, to. Yeah. They are made of 80% natural rubber, so they can bend. I think the, the ad says over a million times without cracking. Sure. And they're such high-quality rubber boots, they're going to last a lot longer than boots that look similar and may cost less, but just are not of the same quality as gum leaf boots. Mm-hmm. So we use them for everything from birding to botanizing to hiking through bogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we've mentioned before, they do seem, at least anecdotally, to help keep the ticks off. Yeah, <laughs> kind of wish I had them on right now. <laughs> and Gumleaf has also set up a special deal for patrons of this podcast, where if you are a patron, you can get free shipping on any Gumleaf boot. Visit gumleafusa.com, and if you're a patron, check out the episode notes for this episode to get the special offer code for free shipping. All right, so what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about the root system, because we got to look at the root system of this plant if we're going to understand Indian pipe biology. So we've said already before the before the ad break that there's not a lot of hairs like you would see. Yeah, it doesn't have a roots. fibrous root system. Yeah. Instead, it's this spherical mass that's about one and a half to three centimeters in diameter. So remember at the very beginning, it was called bird's nest. One okay. Of the common names. Yes. That refers to the roots. Oh. Because it's just this like tangled mass. Hmm. Each ball. Oh, back when, uh, I was about to say back when birds didn't migrate, they went under the ground, but it wasn't the ground. They went under the water, right? Under the water, yeah, Yeah. that's right, it swallows. So each ball consists of numerous, small, fleshy, almost hairless rootlets. Each of the rootlets range from four millimeters to four centimeters. Hmm. All right, so pretty tiny, four centimeters long. Still not not huge. Yeah, yeah. But the root ball, it's so compact with fungi and rootlets that soil is almost absent. Like if you pulled it apart, there'd almost be no soil in there. Oh, interesting. Because it's so tight. Each of the rootlets, it's covered with a white fungal sheath called the mantle. And from the mantle, the fungi sends out branches into the surrounding soil, but also into back into the root cap area. Hmm. Now, you already kind of gave away part of it, but that's okay. My, I, at this point, I was going to ask the question, so what does Indian pipe bring to the table? Okay. Typically in this fungal relationship the trees are providing carbohydrate right. at this point it just seems like it's a substrate for the fungi to grow on <laughs> yeah but how are the how are the fungi doing so well what do you mean like why are they why do they stay growing on it all right we'll talk about that yeah so bot- maybe the soil's enough Have, maybe okay now you've i'm sure you've heard before that indian pipe was referred to as a saprophyte yeah right yeah now at first even before that botanists thought that indian pipe was a parasite feeding directly off the roots of other plants. Okay. So they thought the Indian pipe was connected directly to the roots. Honestly, before the start of this episode, that's what I thought. That I didn't uh, I didn't realize that you were going to say that it was fungi yeah. that it was uh, a parasite on. But then after that, and when I first started learning about Indian pipe, I was actually taught that it was a saprophyte. Mm-hmm. And that's a plant living off of dead and decaying organic material. Yeah. So, so not comes- sap. No. Like, uh, what did we, uh, in the sap episodes, uh, we did mention what the name of that. If you're a sap, like a, there must be some type of saprovore or something, right? 
Oh, you're right. Yeah, there was something like that, but it's different from uh, a saprophyte. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Because saprophyte, that comes from the Greek. Sapros means rotten or putrid. Okay. And then troph means n- nourishment, obviously. Yeah, you don't want your sap rotten or putrid. <laughs> so. No, no. So you can still find references to Indian pipe as a saprophyte online and in books. Hmm. So there were probably a number of web- right. websites when I visited them looking for information on Indian pipe. It was referred to as a saprophyte. They just hadn't right. caught up. And I think it's because right, books are wrong and the internet never forgets. <laughs> That's right. right. So. <laughs> now, in the past, pretty much all non-photosynthetic plants were mistakenly thought to be saprophytes, breaking down organic matter in a manner similar to fungi or soil bacteria. Right? Okay. Because fungi and soil bacteria, we call those you know, like the garbage men of the forest, right? Mm-hmm. They're breaking down all the dead stuff. Yep. But it's now known that plants like Indian pipe in all non-photosynthetic plants, they're, just, they're not physiologically capable of breaking down organic matter. It's one of the things that separates plants from fungi and bacteria. Mm-hmm. So in order to get food, these non-photosynthetic plants, they have to engage in parasitism. So they use... Or to evolve carnivorous habits. There you go. <laughs> but those plants, As a carnivorous uh, plant researcher. <laughs> but don't those plants still do some photosynthesis? They do, 100%. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it's, they don't rely on their trapping right. and digestion. Yep. So Indian pipe uses a process called, and I'm sure I want you to figure this out for the audience, mycoheterotrophy. Oh, so if you're a heterotroph, uh, you're getting energy from something else. And if myco's in the word, it's a fungi. Right, there you go. So you're you're having your fungi. Okay, your it's food. either you're having the fungi get energy from something else or you're getting the energy from the fungi. Yeah. Actually both. Why not both? <laughs> <laughs> well, mycoheterotrophy refers to using fungi to get your food. Yeah, yeah. Okay? Or some do direct parasitism on other plants. That does happen. Mm. And we'll talk about that. So further research, as people looked into Indian pipe, they realized it was fungus. And the process of uh, obtaining the energy starts with photosynthate being produced by nearby trees. So you can mm. just think of simply, you can say, the trees are producing sugar in their leaves. Maybe right? oaks are especially good at this. It goes down the trees, into the tree's roots, and into the fungal mycorrhizal system. It, the, the fungi in this relationship that grow near and around Indian pipe are mainly in the Rusulaceae family. For those, Rusulaceae? Yeah, so like the Rusella mushrooms. Oh, okay. I was like, I don't know that plant family. Yeah. You could tell that I'm looking for oaks right now and not listening to Bill. <laughs> only half listening to you. <laughs> you asked before, like, why is the, the fungi, why is it part of this? Why is it being successful? Yeah. The fungi's there. It's working with the trees. It's just doing its thing. Okay, that, that's what I was wondering. Is it just there? Is it just yep. and then being the in the soil pipe, is good enough for it? The Indian pipe taps into it. Okay. Okay. So the roots of the Indian pipe parasitize the mycelium of the fungi to intercept the sugars hmm. that was produced by the surrounding trees. The exact mechanism of the transfer into Indian pipe is still not really understood. There's, hmm. That's where some research is happening right now. Yeah. And right. there's probably not a lot of money going towards that research. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> or else I'd, I bet we would have the answer by now. <laughs> so let's focus uh, for a little while on mycoheterotrophy. Okay. So this, again, is a symbiotic relationship between plants and fungi in which the plant gets all or part of its food from parasitism upon fungi rather than from photosynthesis. Mm-hmm. So remember that in most relationships in these mycorrhizal networks, plants are using the fungi to exchange carbon and nutrients with other plants. 
Right. Okay. Uh, and we should say that there's evidence that Wait shows... Wait a second. So it's, it's not just a, a two-way street between the fungus and the plant. It's it's a relationship between the plant, the fungus, and other plants? Yeah. So, so I know I've heard that before, yeah. but I didn't expect you to say that, being the, the, that that was the primary. I thought the primary was just going to be the relationship between the fungi and the plant. But it seems to be happening a lot. Like research is showing that, you know, these two trees next to us right here, mm-hmm. these, these two pine trees, and then there's this... Looks like a little cherry tree. Yeah. Okay. Oh, through, <laughs> I just Why I look a bunch up like that? Rain on <laughs> yeah. That they're sharing nutrients mm-hmm. through the mycorrhizal network. Okay. It's still being studied, studied to see how much is going on. And I do have to say, I just listened to an episode of Radiolab that I feel that they oversimplified this. And we okay. may have talked about this before that some people want to look at this and say oh the trees aren't competing with each other they're sharing their nutrients through the network and i think that just from my point of view it almost seems like it would make more sense if maybe there was one continuous mycelium that was connected to both trees and and the trees are in no way connected to each other like it's it's almost like just different parts of the mycelium are acting or interacting with the trees not that one tree can interact all the way with the other tree via right. the mycelium. That's just my thought on it, but I, I would be, it would be exciting to read research that said that no, the trees are somehow communicating and not right. communicating the way that Bill and I are communicating, right. but some other means. Yeah, but I mean they they have used you know radioactive markers. They put them hmm. into one tree, and then and then it's in the in, in within twenty four hours they're finding it in other trees nearby. Wow. Yeah. That's I, I think that's a that's good evidence. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's crazy. But again, I was concerned about the way they described it because they actually said, you know, oh, I mean, come on. It's Radiolab. It's, <laughs> <laughs> I love Radiolab. No, I think they're very good. But I think it's like stuff you should know level of science. <laughs> okay. Uh, <All> yeah. Right. <laughs> I feel stuff you should know is a little bit better. Than okay. Well, <laughs> all right. I'm not saying they're bad either. I'm not. I, I don't want it to come off that I'm bashing all these programs. They're just not scientists. Oh yeah, I love them all. Yeah. And and their their point is to communicate an idea, not to get every last little detail of the idea right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because you're always going to get something wrong. Wrong if it's simplified, oh, because so nothing's simple. So speaking of that, okay, we actually traded some some texts about this. I wanted to take them. I think this is a good spot. Okay. To thank a listener. That wrote in oh. from our last episode, Kathleen yeah. from Seattle. <laughs> she wrote in. Our last episode was the one on Bryas Owens. Okay. And we had Jay Jean from uh, West New York Land Conservancy. Yeah. We were at the College Lodge Forest. I would say flawless episode, but <laughs> you know, you guys were a little bit fast and loose with your continental divide talk, <laughs> and it could have been explained a little bit better because of uh, how people think of that. Right. So. Exactly. So. So a boo on you guys. <laughs> I didn't hear you open, uh, opening your mouth. I wasn't listening. <laughs> I wasn't paying attention, obviously. Wasn't I holding the mic that time? Yeah. I mean, I was looking at my notes, okay. I bet. All right, excuses. So, <laughs> Jay Jean used the term continental divide, and he said yeah. that the continental divide runs through the College Lodge property, right. which is in Fredonia, not too far away from Buffalo. Right. And Kathleen, very understandably, said... Wait a minute. <laughs> well, I think the, I don't know how he put it because I didn't go back and listen to the episode after the after just, the message. But like, if you're saying the continental divide, there's six, right? There are now. Did you know that previously? No, I, I'm I'm not good with that kind of stuff. So. I did not. Yeah. So I looked it up, and I'm worried that when I wrote Kathleen back thanking her and uh, talking about it, that 
I made it seem like I knew this already. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't. Guys, do that we purposely. don't know any anything we talk about. We didn't know before the episode. Exactly, and we forget <laughs> it immediately after the episode. <laughs> right. But yeah, so you got it. There's six continental divides. Most people, when you say the continental divide, they think of the one running through the Rocky Mountains. What it, is the continental divide? So it's really just a watershed yeah. divide. Right. Yeah. So on one side, water flows one way, and on the other side, it flows the other way. So most people, when you say that, the continental divide, they're going to think of the one in the Rocky Mountains, which is technically known as the Great Continental Divide. Yeah. And, and the one that we were talking about was the St. Lawrence Continental Divide. Right. So there are five others across North America. Right. Not to be confused with the Laurentian <laughs> Continental Divide, which is another one, I think. But we did put a link in the episode notes for that episode talking about that. Mm. So thank you, Kathleen, for taking the time to write in and point out something that we should have explained more clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Because I just, when he said Continental Divide, I honestly, I wasn't even thinking about it. Sure. Yeah. yeah I just kind of took him at his... his and, I, and I didn't even hear him say it because of <laughs> you for obvious reasons. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're going to, as I said, we're going to focus on the mycoheterotrophy. Do you think we could focus on this while we walk around? Because I, I would really like to try to find some. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. So I just reiterated how the, the relationship usually, usually works. Now, when Indian pipe enters this relationship, they are mycorrhizal cheaters. And that came <laughs> up several times. They're taking carbon from the common network with no known reward. So they're tapping into it. Oh, Steve just almost stepped on some poison ivy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> No, but no, I, I no, like no. the way that we talk about this. We're like, these, these are cheaters. <laughs> but, wow. uh, and, and the analogy is pretty good, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, I like analogies. Help me out here because several times I saw Indian pipe referred to as an epiparasite. Epiparasite. So Correct. that's, it stays on the outside. Epi? Epidermis? It stays on Isn't the outside of something? Epiparasite? A parasite that parasitizes another parasite? Oh, man, I don't know. Well, I don't know these fancy terms. When I looked it up, because I kept seeing that, I'm like, wait a minute. What parasite is Indian pipe parasitizing? And I even looked up epiparasite, and that was the definition I found. Okay. Something that a parasite that parasitizes another parasite. Yeah. And to me, it doesn't seem like an epiparasite because... Is the fungi a parasite? Well, no, because it's right. working, you know, the tree and the the trees or the other plants it's and the symbiont, fungi. It's a symbiont, right? So, right. Hmm. So... Again, if we have any Indian pipe or parasitic experts out there, let us know. Am I misunderstanding what an epiparasite is or this relationship here? Am I misunderstanding it? Yeah. Because to me, it just seems like a parasite. All right. One last thing about mycoheterotrophy. So Indian pipe is what we call an obligate mycoheterotroph. Right. It has to do this. Compare that with something that's a facultative ah, parasite. Ah, very good, Steve. Yeah. Which uh, it only does it... It doesn't have to do it, but it can do it. So this is a, that would be when a plant is capable of photosynthesis, mm -hmm. but it still parasitizes fungi as a supplementary food supply. So some members- Just does it for fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> some members of the gentian family do this. Okay. Now there's also plants. Did you know that there's uh, a lot of gentian trees? What? Like gentian tree relatives uh, in no. Asia. Wow. Yeah, because in North America, we only think of these herbaceous plants, but they're full on woody <laughs> trees. And they're still gentians? They're gentians. Wow, that's or, cool. Well, I don't know if it's in the genus gentian, but uh, gentianaceae anyway. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's another place we need to visit then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really want to. Yeah. So there are some orchid species. Now get this. Are you listening? <laughs> Did you know that there's woody orchid species? 
<laughs> Shut up. <laughs> trees, orchid trees. Wow, for all I know, there are orchid trees, and I just don't know about them. I don't think so, though. I don't think so either. Yeah. So there's some orchid species that are non-photosynthetic and obligately mycoheterotrophic. Wow, that's hard to say. <laughs> yeah. For part of their life cycle, mm-hmm. but then they're photosynthetic for the rest. Okay. So they start out mycoheterotrophic, and then they turn photosynthetic. Right. And there's even some... I could understand that. I feel like um, humans are kind of like that. They're kind of parasites early on in life. And then uh, and then later on, they start making their own way in the world. <laughs> beautiful. You should write uh, greeting cards. <laughs> so there's even some ferns and club mosses that have mycoheterotrophic gametophyte stages. Now, I should say... and I, I may Wait, have... we just said gametophyte very quickly. Good point. What is a gametophyte? <laughs> Wait, so... Um... These are in... Gametophyte is the non-reproductive part. So right? this is like an extra stage it's in the a, life cycle. It's a non-reproductive stage. Because yeah, so... I think of gametophytic and sporophytic phases in mosses. Right, and ferns have and ferns. This. So yeah. things that reproduce with spores, there's kind of a, a stage between like the plant first emerging, yeah. becoming... It almost looks yeah, like a completely like different plant. They're just happy being single. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're just relaxing. <laughs> I feel that's a horrible way to describe it. <laughs> The job we just did describing the meat of fight. <laughs> but moving on. Yeah. <laughs> so when you look at these plants that are achlorophyllous, which means? They lack chlorophyll. Right. Not all of them are microheterotrophic. Which means? <laughs> just every, getting every their couple food, words. <laughs> getting their food from fungus. I feel like I've said that a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mentioned this before. There are some that are directly parasitic on other plants. Okay. Like, like dotter. Okay, yes. Dotter is... Ugh non-photosynthetic dotters like these basically if you see like a mass of what look like thin orange worms covering a bunch of other um uh of un, you know the understory brush yeah that's dotter right. it's awful and uh it kind of looks gross and I, I, at least i wouldn't want to be tangled up in it looks like your beard a little bit <laughs> my beard is very orange in the right your, light your covid beard <laughs> yeah <laughs> although i'm getting a lot of whites in there you did uh shave i just noticed that. yeah yeah last time i saw you you were looking I like d- uh... i don't like shaving because then it's harder to notice those bright white hairs that i have which i really like <laughs> yeah, come on. you look distinguished <laughs> yeah yeah or you have a lot of them or Jeez. <laughs> i look very distinguished. and you don't even need to have a long beard for yours to stand out <laughs> it's a good look <laughs> <laughs> all right so i promise i'm not going to say mycoheterotrophy anymore yeah right what I'm going to wrap up with is just by saying for Indian pipe, if you're going to go out into the woods and look for Indian pipe like we're doing now, but I don't think we're going to find any. Yeah. Um, don't try to transplant it. Mm. Why? Is it because the mycelium is so specific? Yeah. I mean, you yeah. need the mycelium. It's, as I said, it's specific usually to one family right. uh, of fungi. So the chances that you're going to have the fungus or the right fungus yeah. are slim to none. Huh. Um, the seeds, when they do germinate, they do form those immediate mycorrhizal bonds. It needs to be there. Oh, quick. And then, you know, it does say here in my notes, kind of going back to the question you asked early on, several stems usually rise together in mm. that hooded ghostly array. But they rise together from multiple seeds. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say it. Right now, multiple seeds, that's what the guess is going to yeah, be. Okay. But yeah. I'll put that in the episode notes. Okay. All right. So I was going to end... Well, almost end with a story. Okay. Because sometimes, depending on, on how many notes I have and how much, I don't want to go too long. I look into the herbal uses of plants, and I know you love learning about herbal use. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. There's uh, a lot of medicine, legitimate medicine, has yes. come from plants. True. But there's a lot of other plants 
that have been studied and we know that they don't do anything and yet people are still using them. Have I ever talked to you? There's a book called The Honest Herbal. No. I actually shared, I think I bought a copy for Matt from In Defense of Plants. Okay. But there is a book, and I can't believe I haven't mentioned this on the podcast before. It looks at a lot of plants that are often cited as having herbal uses. Okay. And for each one, it looks at what the research shows. Oh, that's super interesting. It collects it into... And when was it published? Well, a second edition came out like within the past 10 years okay, or so. Okay, because I was about to say, even if it is 10 or 20 years old, I'm sure we haven't found much more. Because uh, who's <laughs> doing that, that research? Yeah, who's doing that research? <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot more. There might be a third edition out for all I know. I just have so little faith in uh, in plant research. So. <laughs> what? Are you being I mean, serious? No, I mean, for that stuff. Although we do have someone in our department that does look at that type of stuff. Like that they looks plants, herbal uses for yeah, plants. Yeah, certain compounds and plants that are used for, like let's say, like cancer treatment and stuff like that so at least they write that into their grant because that's a way to get money <laughs> but why do you have little faith in it i don't know i just feel like uh, there's a lot of plants that are ignored i don't know like i think you feel like there should be more research i think that if you're gonna have a grant that gives you money for plant research i think that plant probably is already being used for something and uh, they want to see what else it could be used for all right yeah, I don't know. Well, in terms of Indian pipe, it's one of those plants that it's pretty much you can find it's being used for just about anything, hmm. uh, which means it's probably not useful. Not used for, for anything. Right. Even if people are using it, they're really not using it for anything. Right, because yeah. everything from cancer to eye problems to colds to mm -hmm. vomiting, like the list just goes on and on and on. Right. But one of the first times that I met Indian pipe was in the Adirondacks. On oh, my God. Sandy Geffner. I can I can tell you used to be a naturalist because <laughs> what I met Indian pipe. What? <laughs> I think that's I said used to be a naturalist. <laughs> Still, yeah. No, I would say I used to be a naturalist. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I do say things when I'm out with my lab and stuff. I'm like, oh, I, I don't know if I say it when I'm out with them, but I do refer to plant species as friends in a way. Why yeah. not? Yeah. <laughs> when I see a, a wildflower I haven't seen since last year, mm -hmm. I, you know, it's like meeting an old friend. Sure, why not? And I love when I've been researching something for a long time, you're just out of curiosity, and then I come across it in the wild. I'm like, oh my God, I'm such a big fan. <laughs> I've been reading about you for years. So <laughs> we've mentioned Sandy Geffner on the podcast before. It's a, a teacher that Steve and I both had in college. Yeah. And he does trips every summer up to the Adirondacks. And he took us up there. We were on a hike through the woods and he introduced us to Indian plant. Ah, you want to say Indian plant. Indian pipe. And he mentioned that people have used it for its hallucinogenic properties. Hmm. So there was a kid. People, in the... quote unquote, people <laughs> yeah. have used it. There was a kid in the class <laughs> who we lovingly referred to as. Bill Michael is... Yeah. <laughs> his name was Eli. And we lovingly referred to him as tie-dye Eli. Okay. Which gives you an immediate picture. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. uh, very laid back. Did he have long hair? Great guy, yes. Okay. And he's one of those guys that just always kind of hung in the back of the group, didn't say much, uh, a bit distracted. But as soon as Sandy said that, he perked up, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then as we moved on, he quickly collected some of those plants. Yeah. Took them back to the bunkhouse, used the old one light bulb lamp to try <laughs> oh to dry God. them out. And then around the, the campfire, I don't know, three or four nights later, he did try to smoke it, but reported no effects whatsoever right. either positive or negative or in between right so just and then two weeks later he died <laughs> that's true guys nothing <laughs> so if tie-dye eli is out there somewhere <laughs> we think tell us our story yeah, yeah. tell wow. us your story what happened uh, long-term effects of uh, indian pipe smoking right yeah. all right so we got to interview this guy <laughs> 
that is the point at which I'm going to say, if you are a fan or a, a believer in homeopathy, oh, this is the yeah. point where you should probably sign off. Because <laughs> I don't want to offend anybody. Uh-huh. Um, but I feel, looking at the time on our uh, how much we've recorded here, I feel we have time to get into this. Indian pipe and its homeopathic history. What do they call it? What's the homeopathy? Do you know? What do you mean? Do, what would it say on the bottle? They could just say Indian pipe. Oh, well, so I used to work at a place that we sold a lot of uh, magical items. <laughs> and, for example, Poison Ivy went by its old name. So, Rustox, right? Oh, I see what you're saying. So, homeopathy yeah. often gives plant-based remedies. And they, they, of... they stick with the old names because I think that's, I mean, it's a business thing. It's a, That's what people are going to know. I remember telling a... Um, I remember telling a customer, I was like, oh, interesting. So this is used for, like, people take this homeopathic thing for, um, for like, skin conditions, like, you know, uh, dermatitis or something. I was like, that's super interesting because the plant that they say is in there, you know, one in 10 to the 30th, you know, one in 10 Dilution. to the 30th parts or whatever um, that's in this is poison ivy. You know, that's what that's what they're saying when they say rux. Tox. I don't know what what the old name, the name but is. now it's Toxicodendron radicans, right? So, right. And they're like, "What? There's poison ivy in this?" I was like, "There's not. Come on, there's not poison ivy in this." <laughs> I'm like, "But, but that's that's what it's saying. That's what it says is in it." And uh, they were very disturbed by that. And I'm like, why, why don't you know these things? You're using the product. Well, that, that leads me to my next question. Do you feel we need to explain to the audience? If you want to do it, go ahead, because I can't explain it. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, think I don't covered... want to say, I sound like I'm angry, but, okay. I, but I'm not. It's just a, it's like just a thing that people buy. I we've don't know. talked about it before, and a lot of people, the point I definitely want to make is a lot of people put homeopathy and herbalism together as the same thing, and they are definitely not the same thing, right? No, home... no, 100%. Yeah, so when a lot of people say they like uh, homeopathic things, I usually, I've, I've asked them about it. I've, d- I've done this multiple times, and they start bringing up herbalism. They start bringing in um, holistic medicine, things like that. Right. And that's not what homeopathy is. Homeopathy is like the most processed thing you can make. Well, so... it's, homeopathy is pseudoscience. 100 percent it's magical thinking right if homeopathy is true then everything we know about chemistry and biology and and (laughs) really the world in general (laughs) and the universe doesn't make sense yeah right but i think that's where we'll leave it but when i was researching indian pipe can i can i say one one quick thing yeah go ahead i think when i think people might not be happy with you saying that because there's this popular idea about the placebo effect and how powerful a placebo can be and so they're like oh even if there's nothing to this placebos and the, the power of the body and things like that but but. I, but but there is a misunderstanding about the placebo right. effect and that is if you see an effect from something that has no mechanism for effect that means it's not working like placebos are a very important part of ex- an experimental design right because if you're getting an effect from a placebo, the placebo is not doing anything. Um, this is It's not predictive either. Right. It's, it's not predictive. And, predictable, I should say. Yeah. And there's no real benefit from, from placebos the way people think there's a benefit. But uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy if, uh, if someone has a study they want to send my way. Oh, but, God. Um, you're opening a can. I, uh, but yeah, I've, I've done a lot of reading on placebos. And, uh, and, and very often you'll see something where someone will claim something from a placebo paper and then you go and read the placebo paper and like they weren't claiming that at all or there was very obvious design flaws where it wasn't a blinded study it wasn't you know there's 
a lot of things that these studies cut corners on <laughs> that, and, that is super important to make note of. And but. I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here. Sure, because... which I, think, I feel like we already did. Because <laughs> there's a, a lot of great resources out there that people can go to and, and look into homeopathy. Sure. I really brought this up just because of what I came across was humorous and, and I wanted to share it. Okay. <laughs> and I don't want to be offensive to homeopathy, but this was really too good not to share. So I didn't realize that as part of homeopathy, they do something called approving. Because mm. when I was looking on Google, Google Scholar for Indian pipe, this paper came up and it was a homeopathic proving for Indian pipe, which is they analyze a plant to determine its effects within the homeopathic canon. Okay. And part of that involves giving a specific dose of the plant prepared homeopathically, which means there's no traceable amount of the plant within the remedy. Right. Nothing detectable. Nothing but detectable. Because water has memory. That's what they believe. Okay. And then they record their reactions, which sounds okay. They're saying, hey, we're taking this. And then they might have 40 people recording. Well, this is what how I felt after I took it. Okay. Which I could almost get behind. But part of that is they record their dreams. Mm-hmm. And then someone reads through all of these dream accounts and tries to assemble themes. I hope I understood this right. This is a hundred. This kind of sounds a lot like the research I do. <laughs> <laughs> this is a hundred and fifteen-page paper. Okay. And well over two-thirds of the paper was just a listing of the dreams. Oh yeah. And I just wanted to share very quickly. Yeah. The most frequently occurring powerful imagery was that of being morphing, of a being morphing from one state into another. Transvestites, cross-dressing, drag queens, a child becomes a cat, a person dressed as a cow. Human legs become super pistons and transforming grotesquely into a younger person. In a similar category, there were images of new species created after this change had occurred. These included crows with Darth Vader heads, an Amish family with hippopotamus teeth, a human with horse or goat legs, a farm of animal beings fused between human and animal, and a man with ridiculously huge biceps. Well, there you have it. <laughs> so I'm reading this like, what? Yeah. Um, so that is somehow predictive of what Indian pipe you know, will do. I didn't expect this, but I'm starting to believe in this homeopathy thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm sorry if that offends anybody, but you can blame Steve because when I was first telling him about this, he was like, no, I think you want to include that in the episode. Wow. <laughs> you can't trust past Steve <laughs> or even present or future Steve, as it turns out. Yeah. All right, so that is what I have on Indian Pipe. Got it. Now this is what I have on Indian Pipe. No, I'm <laughs> so before we get into thanking the patrons, uh, I do want to say I was looking through iNaturalist, some of their mm. discussion forums, and somehow I stumbled on a discussion from February 2019 mm -hmm. where someone asked, hey, are there any good natural history podcasts out there? And it was Can't think of any. very <laughs> nice to see. The field guides came up several times. So, oh, that's cool. If you were the one of the people that chimed in on that thread within iNaturalist, thank you for that, folks. You know, I used to do that every episode. I used to Google search the field guides and try to see what came up, but yeah. I haven't done it in a long time. Why not? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, why don't you handle the patrons? All right. So, first and foremost, we like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So, thank you, Renz Vandernoop, Shelly. J. Jean, Kelly S., and Bob M. 
And we always like to thank our top patrons. So thank you, the Hebranks, Alyssa, Sean, Rich, Jessica, Rachel, Orange Julian, Daniel, Diane, Ken, Renz, our new patron, Jean, Kelly, Bob. Holy cow, we have a bunch of new top patrons. Not only are they new, they're top patrons. So yeah. thank you so much. Uh, Kazzies, Jeff, Goose, Bruce, Esther, John, Pollywog, Gavin, we named the dog Indy, and Rob. Right. Thank you guys so much. And we can cut this out if you want, but I was thinking as a, a way to kind of involve the audience, and instead mm -hmm. of having us just reading through the list each time, what if we have, we put it out there to our listenership, if you want to be the, the one to read the list of our patrons each month, you could record yourself doing that, and we would stick it on the end of the episode. Oh, it'd be a way we could thank our patrons, but also involve the listeners. What do you think about that? I'm I'm fine with it. All so right. take uh, take me uh, <laughs> reading the name off and make the list yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so, folks, if you are interested, send us an email uh, at thefieldguides at gmail .com Yeah, and let us know you're interested, and then we would we'll pick someone at random each episode. Mm -hmm. And we'll send you the list and you could record yourself reading it and just send it back to us. I like this idea. I feel like even if you don't want to list, even if you don't want to read the patrons for us, I think it'd be fun if, if uh, even if we had like listener mail. So instead of writing us an email, if you just record yourself saying something like a question or uh, you want to debate homeopathy with us <laughs> sure. or something, just record yourself saying something and maybe we'll play it on the podcast. Yeah. I'm totally fine with that. I think it would be fun. That'd be great. All right, so we also want to encourage everyone that's listening out there, if you like the podcast, if you like what you're doing, subscribe to us on iTunes, leave a review there or on whatever podcatcher you use. And we want to thank our newest reviewer, iLams, mm -hmm. right? And I know last episode, Steve said that he was going to start collecting some reviews from iTunes from other countries. Mm -hmm. And you did read some last time. Yeah, I read uh, from two countries last time. Yeah, I think so it was the UK and Australia. Or something. I think so, yeah. So we don't have any for this episode, but we'll try to do that for the next one as well. The UK and Canada. I'll do Australia next time, right. <laughs> if there is any. And then don't forget, you can also ask your smart speaker to play us. You can just say, hey, play the field guides. And it usually plays the latest episode. Oh, that's pretty cool. I didn't know that. Yep. And then don't forget, folks, you can check out all of our social media feeds, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And if you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion, such as um, Steve and Bill should stop ragging on homeopathy, <laughs> uh, just email us at thefieldguides at gmail.com. And lastly, don't forget, folks, it is summertime. It's beautiful. So get those kids outside. Let them get muddy. Let them get dirty. Let them flip over rocks and logs. Yep. See you next month. See you next month, folks. Uh-oh. Is the dog gonna kill us? <laughs>